Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Siphon, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Joseph, sorry, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The, Samarit the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealing with Samaritan. Um, Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying it to you, give me a drink. You would have asked me and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you and he. This is the word of the Lord. And we'll continue to verse 42. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, 
Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labour. Others have laboured, and you have entered into their labour. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Saviour of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Grace and Joseph. Welcome, everybody. My name is Mike, and it's good to have you join us, Church at Nine, especially if you're a new face. Uh, we're going to look at John chapter 4 today. It's quite a long chapter. So the way I thought we'd approach um, this longish chapter was to think about a phrase, and the phrase is eternal life, eternal life. Now that phrase, um, it's one of John's favourite phrases, he uses it in this passage at least twice, he's used it before in his gospel. It's a phrase which, as if you're a Christian, that's a phrase that we talk about to people that we want to evangelize to, we say, hey, do you want to have eternal life? You can have eternal life if you trust in Jesus. My question is, how excited are you genuinely about eternal life? Because we use it all the time. It's in John's gospel a lot. Are you excited about eternal life? My impression is that it's something that we want, but I rarely see people getting excited about it like they do about other things. And I wonder whether there are at least two reasons why it's hard to get excited about eternal life, this phrase. The first reason is because if you think about the words eternal life, on the surface it just sounds like um, life which never ends. That's the most basic reading of eternal life. If your understanding of eternal life is just life which never finishes, then your level of excitement about eternal life will depend on how excited you are about your life right now. Now, I know that many of you live more exciting lives than I do, but I reckon, for me, my life is not that exciting. Like, I have moments of excitement, but a lot of my life is like getting the bins out before Wednesday, um, you know, paying bills. There's moments of joy and excitement. And if my picture of eternal life is just life which never finishes, then I will be mildly excited about eternal life at best. The second reason, I think, is because eternal life 
it's a very abstract concept. Um, just this life, last week in my very exciting life, I watched a guy unbox an iPhone on YouTube. And just as that, he unwrapped it, he took it out, that scratchless perfect screen, and you could just see the excitement as he touched it for the first time, as he, he gazed his eyes upon this beautiful new piece of technology. Eternal life. I can't like touch it, I can't see it in the same way. It's not an iPhone, it doesn't bring me that same level of excitement that this tangible thing does in front of me. Friends, chapter four of John, I think is one of the most important passages for our understanding of eternal life. Because John four is a passage which tells us that eternal life, it's not just this life which never ends. There's actually a depth and a richness and a beauty about eternal life, that if you and I understand what eternal life really looks like, then I think we will be excited to share it and excited to look forward to it as well. And that's my prayer for us this morning. So will you join me as we come to this wonderful chapter in John? Father, we want to give you thanks for bringing each one of us together today, that we may listen to the words that you have spoken to us in John chapter 4. Please lift our eyes and we pray that you would lift our hearts to see what eternal life is really about. And would you teach this to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, contextually, okay, contextually, we are, um, the big contrast kind of in this immediate part of John's gospel is that Jesus had an encounter in chapter 3 with a guy called Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was a high-powered highly respected, very religious leader who went away confused after meeting Jesus. Today, Jesus meets a lowly status, not as well respected, in fact, an, an enemy of God's people, and yet she is transformed by the person of Jesus. And again, it's, it's 42 verses, so the way that I thought we'd try and get through it is to try and answer that question together, what is so good about eternal life? And hopefully that will just keep us sailing through in a way that we can keep up. So friends, uh, come with me in your Bibles, John chapter 4, verse 1. Um, the first wonderful truth about eternal life is that Jesus, the bridegroom, will be with us. Come with me, chapter 4, verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea, and he departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So Jesus arrives at this location. The experts tell me that this place, Sychar, was near the very significant Old Testament place of Shechem where God uh, made some significant promises to his people. But the, the detail that I want to draw out here is that Jesus was tired and he sat down geographically at a well. At a well. And he asks a lady for a drink. Now, friends, just to kind of appreciate this first point, I just um, need to tell you a little bit about wells and marriages. So, um... In the Old Testament, so Barney, there's some static. If it keeps going, should I just go and back to the lectern, Mike? Sorry, everyone. 
in the meantime, can you think about an Old Testament character? Sorry, that's just super annoying. All right, um, to appreciate this first point, uh, we need to understand something about wells and marriages. Okay, so that is in the Old Testament, there were at least three Old Testament characters who met at a well and got married. And for whatever reason, this was God's ordained decision to make the well the kind of meeting place for this to happen. It wasn't particularly romantic. Wells didn't have like an ambient sort of music and lighting. Um, it was just in God's decision, the well was the meeting place where key Old Testament figures got married. Now, I want to throw it out to you. There's at least three examples that are in my mind. Can anyone tell me um, any couple that got, that got married after meeting at a well? Down the back. Yes, Isaac and Rebecca. That's number one. Yes. Any others? Jacob and Rachel. So that's, I think that's the one on view here. And there's, a, there's another one with a bit less detail, and that's Moses and Zipporah. I think someone might have said it. Zipporah, great name, Zipporah, Zippy. Um, so that is in the Old Testament, these three significant characters in the Old Testament, uh, the man goes to a well, meets a woman, there's kind of an exchange of drinks, nothing alcoholic, just standard H2O from the well. And then in God's providence, these characters got married. And so we come to John chapter 4, and we see Jesus sit down at a well, and he asks for a drink from this woman. And it's weird to think about Jesus in these terms, but we're thinking, is there a marriage that's going to take place? Now, there's one key difference between the Old Testament marriages at wells and John chapter 4, and the big difference is that the Samaritan woman is the complete opposite of marriage material. Now, to, to kind of just explain this, and this is why I think Jacob and Rachel's marriage is kind of in the background here. Just coming up on the screen is the Old Testament feel-good passage of the year. This is, this is in Genesis chapter 29, after Jacob and Rachel first meet at the well. And later in the chapter, I can't read that, so I'm going to read this. Um, just have a listen to the way that Jacob thinks about Rachel. He says, so now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel and he said, I'll serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Jacob was so smitten by Rachel. She was beautiful. And he was so kind of head over heels for her that seven years felt like just a few days. Have you ever felt like that? Wow. What a feel-good passage. Feel-good passage. Keep that in mind. If you come back to John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman, in contrast, is the complete opposite. In fact, throughout the whole chapter 4, it's made very clear that the Samaritan woman is the complete opposite, undeserving of love. So come with me to verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, 
And Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away in the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman says to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And if you come back down, all the way down to the second half of the passage, see, not quite, from verse 20, it says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. The Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. They had a different place to worship God. Mount Gerizim was the place for the Samaritans, and of course Jerusalem was the place where the Jews worshipped God. And their hatred for each other stemmed all the way back in the Old Testament when the big superpower Assyrians conquered the people of God. And the Assyrians' tactic to conquer people, you know, the Americans today conquer through McDonald's, planting them all around the world. The Assyrians conquered the world through intermarriage. So they took away the strongest and the best, and they mixed other cultures with God's people. Samaritans became a mixed, confused group of people. And so much later, the pure Jews saw the Samaritans as confused, not real worshippers of God. And since that time, the Jews have hated the Samaritans. And yet Jesus comes to the Samaritan woman, the enemies of the Jews, and he says, I offer you living water. I offer you living water. This woman was completely undeserving of love, an enemy of the people of God, Jesus stands before her and says, I give you this offer. And as as the narrative progresses, you'll notice that she moves from sceptical to prophet. Maybe he's a prophet. He knows my life. If you look down at the very end of our section, verse 42, not only her, but all the Samaritans declared Jesus to be the saviour of the world. Friends, all this is to say, what is so good about eternal life? Yes, it will be this gift of living water that we'll talk about, but the most wonderful thing about eternal life will be that one day, if you're a Christian person who trusts in Jesus, you will stand face to face with the one who has loved you with an everlasting love. Just like the Samaritans, we are enemies of God And Jesus knows that, he knows our history, and yet he still decided to give his life for us, to be that perfect bridegroom. And one day in eternal life, we will stand in his presence and in his fellowship for all eternity. Now, I know, and I feel this way as well, that for many of us, when we think about eternal life, what we long for and what our hearts long for is to see particular people once again in heaven. When I ask the kids at Kids Church, what are you looking forward to about heaven? What questions do you have? Most of the questions are things like, will I see my family there? Where will we live? Who will be my friends in heaven? And I think as wonderful as those things are, the most wonderful relationship that you and I will enjoy in eternal life will be the fellowship we will have 
with our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. There will be no greater joy worshipping the Lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. You, for those of you who know me, I don't cry easily. I've only really cried that one scene in The Lion King, but also those videos of soldiers returning from war. Something gets in my eye every day. I don't know what it is. Um, Whether they've been away one year, two years, just that moment when they see each other face to face once again, years of messages, phone calls, all builds up to that moment when they get to embrace each other again. Can you imagine that day when you stand before the one that you've been worshipping 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, the one who has loved you like no other human person has loved you? When you stand before him and you embrace him and you have fellowship with him, there will be no greater joy in eternal life than to be in his presence for all time. So, friend, what is so wonderful about eternal life? It's that we will be in fellowship with our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus. Secondly, the second reason why eternal life will be so good is because eternal life will satisfy our souls beyond anything we can experience in this life. Come down with me, verse 10 again. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? You're greater than our father Jacob. He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. But Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman, like Nicodemus, only understands kind of the physical aspect to this water, but Jesus is offering her living water which wells up to eternal life. Um, So what he's offering to the woman, it's not just physical nourishment, but what he's offering is spiritual nourishment and satisfaction. The metaphor, which I think you could have worked out, but it's basically as water satisfies our physical thirst, so living water satisfies the soul forever. Now, I reckon as the reader, like you didn't need me to tell you that. Like you could have worked out that living water was actually a metaphor. He wasn't actually talking about physical water. But I want to just um, point you to actually a really helpful Old Testament passage because living water actually has a bit of a, a richer background, which is helpful to appreciate. So just coming up on the screen is Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah was a young punk prophet and he got commissioned to, in particular, pronounce judgment on God's people. And part of that judgment comes in chapter 2, verse 13. God saying, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So what um, 
living water is not just living water satisfies. It's actually that God is the source of living water. He's the source of true satisfaction. But like the Samaritan woman, you and I have actually sought satisfaction in other receptacles. They don't hold water. And so that's the comparison. It's another way of saying that God is the source of true nourishment, but by nature, humans, God's people, seek satisfaction in other places. And that's why if you come back to John chapter 4, immediately after saying, you can have living water, Jesus tells the woman, go call your husband. Do you see that in verse 16? And the woman says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus, through this conversation, reveals that she's in fact had five husbands and she's now living with a man who she's not married to. So what's going on here? Jesus is saying to her, I can offer you true living water that only God can offer, but you have been looking for satisfaction in all the wrong places. And you've been looking for it in particular for her in male relationships. She's been seeking the stagnant, stale waters of human relationship and time after time, she's seeking satisfaction. Her desire is for companionship, husbandry. She's disappointed, moves on, seeks the same thing again, gets disappointed, seeks the same thing again. Jesus is saying, if you look for satisfaction in places that can't give it to you, then you'll never be satisfied. Only the Lord Jesus, only his offer of living water can truly satisfy our souls. Now, friends, I know that's very abstract again, so I just want to give you one kind of expression of how this might apply to us. But one thing I've noticed in my own life and in some of the conversations I've had recently is that I think a lot of our conflict and our discontentment and disappointment comes with misaligned expectations of other people. Whether you're a husband and you've got a wife who doesn't meet the expectations that you thought she should have, whether you're a wife whose husband just continues to not meet the expectations that you've set, I've had conversations about people who says, people, they're just like friendships, people aren't being good friends to me and they're not meeting my expectations of a friend. So much of our conflict and disappointment seems to be this like, I expect something of someone else and they're just not meeting that. And what happens is that generally spirals into isolation and seeking satisfaction in other places. Friends, I don't know how exactly this applies to you, but there's only one person who can be Jesus, the saviour of the world to us, and that is Jesus himself. And so I wonder whether some of us just need to readjust some of our expectations of the significant people in our life. Now, I'm not saying we can't have expectations. You need expectations to function. But so much of the time, I think we project expectations that only Jesus can meet. And it's not our spouse's job, our friend's job, our church's job to meet those expectations. I'll let you think about that one yourself.
So eternal life is wonderful because we'll be in the presence of Jesus. Eternal life will bring a greatest joy and satisfaction beyond anything we can have in this life. There's one final aspect of eternal life that I want to draw your attention to, and that is that eternal life is transformational. It brings change that is only possible through the miraculous new birth of the Holy Spirit. There are at least three aspects of transformation in this passage. Three aspects. The first transformation that happens is the Samaritan woman. So if you come with me to verse 28, after encountering Jesus, she says, John says to us, the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? She leaves the very reason that she went there for, and she leaves to tell people about the person of Jesus, transformation number one. Transformation number two is at the end of the passage. If you come with me to verse 39, it says, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. And by the end of the passage, it says there in verse 42, They said to the woman, It's no longer because of what you've said that we believe, for we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the saviour of the world. The Samaritans themselves are transformed. The enemies of the Jewish people are now declaring Jesus to be the saviour of the world. But there's a third transformation in this passage, and it comes between the first one and the second one. That is, from verse 31, there's this weird sort of side interaction with Jesus' disciples, and all of a sudden he starts talking to them about agriculture. And then in verse 36, he says this, he says, Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. That is, I, the Messiah, have arrived. The harvest time is here. In other words, the time for transformed lives has arrived. And Jesus is saying to the disciples, you are now going to be in the business of changing lives and transforming people for all eternity. Three transformations. Eternal life changes and it transforms lives both now and into eternity. It's not self-improvement. It's a radical change from the inside. But friends, I wonder what you think about transformation. The more I use that word and I hear that word, it's again one of those words which I think that, especially if you're Christian, I want transformation, you want a changed life, but I'm not exactly sure how to come by it. My life on a daily basis doesn't feel transformational. It doesn't feel radically different every day. But I want to suggest that in in this chapter, the key that John wants us to hear is that the transformation occurs through the word of Jesus. It's not 12 rules that will transform your life. It's not five top tips that you do and you will leave never never the same. Do you notice that the moment for transformation 
is the word of Jesus. So the Samaritan woman, back in verse 28, just before she leaves her water jar, Jesus declares himself to be the Christ. The word of himself. And the Samaritans down in verse 41, they believed it and they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said, but we've heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the saviour of the world. That is, transformation, changed lives, only happens through the word of Jesus. That is how we win souls for Christ. There is no other way to do it apart from the very word of Jesus, to grow, to come and be transformed, to be changed. There is no other way apart from the word of Christ. Three weeks ago, I heard a very moving story uh, about a, a set of Christian foster parents. And these Christian foster parents got a phone call one day and the social services said, we've got two three-year-old twin boys and they just need a place for six weeks. And the foster parents said, look, we've got two kids of our own. We are taking two foster children Currently, we can't do it. And uh, social services insisted, so they took them in. The first day that the twin boys arrived, they didn't say a word. They didn't eat anything. They just went straight to bed, completely silent. That night, the dad goes into the room to check on them because hasn't heard anything. Still completely quiet, asleep. Puts his hand on their pillow completely soaked with tears. So these two boys, social services said, they were so traumatised, so abused, so neglected, that they even documented them as emotionally irreparable, beyond fixing. In God's kindness, these Christian foster parents and another next set of Christian foster parents took these boys in and today, these two boys are like, they're fully functioning adults. Good jobs, have their own families. Now, what took those boys from emotionally irreparable to fully functioning adults? It wasn't, you know, start acting like a good kid. It wasn't things like, just respect your parents more. It was that every word of love, every word of comfort, and every word of assurance and challenge backed up by their, their actions, as they understood and they experienced every word from those Christian foster parents that their lives were changed and transformed. And friends, you and I are spiritually irreparable people. We have so neglected and rejected the God of everything that we are beyond repair. And the only thing that will transform us, the only thing that will bring a new birth into each one of us, will be as we come before every word of love and every word of comfort and every word of assurance and every word of hope from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other way that you can be changed. And so, friends, I, 
you know, if there's kind of a one practical encouragement, if you're a Christian person here, it might be something like this. Don't substitute the nourishing words of Jesus in the Bible with the fast food podcasts, articles, and those types of things. As much as those things point to the person of Jesus, there is no substitute for the richness of Jesus speaking to each one of us clearly through his word. And I know life gets busy and so we want to take the drive-through option, but friends, I want to encourage all of us to dig deep, to listen and experience the love and the words of the Lord Jesus as he gives it to us in his word. And may that be a bit of an encouragement to kind of don't forget about me, the paper Bibles, and to keep working at listening to God's word together. So friends, um, how do you feel about eternal life? Like, at the very least, I just want us to see that eternal life, it's not just this in, unending kind of pattern of existence, a longer version of what you live now. Eternal life is actually a place where we will stand in the presence of our Lord Jesus and we will have incredible joy as we relate to him and fellowship with him. Your soul will be satisfied in eternal life to a point which you cannot match to anything in this world. And friends, eternal life will transform you, not just in eternity, but also as you put your trust in Jesus, your life will be changed now, that you will be forgiven for your sins and that your life can be transformed into the likeness of your Saviour. So may these things stir us to appreciate and be excited about eternal life. Shall we pray together? Father, we thank you that our Lord Jesus commits himself far greater to us than any human spouse or friend. We thank you that he has loved us so deeply despite our past and our present sin. Would you work in us a great desire and longing for eternal life that we may look forward to the day where we will see Jesus face to face? And Father, we pray that you would indeed change our lives now to be transformed into his image and to partake in the transformational work of the harvest. We ask this so Jesus would again receive the glory he deserves. Amen.